We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is a special holiday edition of Forum, when we take the opportunity to go back into our archives to play you some of our favorite shows, like this one. The pandemic has changed our physical world and the way we interact with it in both dramatic and subtle ways, tape on the sidewalk to mark intervals of six feet while in line to enter a store, wooden platforms to expand the width of sidewalks for outdoor dining, plexiglass barriers separating grocery store workers from their customers. Who better to help us make sense of, and maybe even find some pleasure in our changing surroundings, than Roman Mars? He spent the last several years exploring the architecture and design all around us that we often overlook and that he thinks should be celebrated. He's been telling us about it through his podcast, 99% Invisible. Now Mars has a new book with Kurt Kolstedt, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Welcome to Forum, Roman Mars. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you. And it was a pleasure to look through your book. Congratulations (laughs) on your book. You know, I I sort of stopped saying congratulations to people after a while, but my (laughs) sense is it's really appropriate here. I mean, first off, as I said, it's a beautiful book, but I can really sense your excitement about it. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's sort of this strange culmination of the last 10 years of doing the podcast 99% Invisible and and also this next phase and evolution of the things that we've done and and, and you know Kurt and I worked um, really really hard on it so it's one of those things where it's just like a relief to get over the finish line and get it out in the world today. And how long have you been thinking about turning this into a book? How long have you and Kurt been thinking about that? Well I mean Ever since the podcast had any audience whatsoever, people have asked me to do a book, you know, publishers have asked me to do a book, but it never really felt right until now. And so this really, this process started maybe about three years ago. And, you know, Kurt came to me with the sort of the the field guide idea. And then we, um, it just sort of made sense because we had all these stories about the built environment uh, locked up in audio format. And I, I think you know, audio and radio is the most superior form of communication and entertainment known to humans. And so I love that it's a podcast, but there's something about, um, you know, like if you were listening to the show for a long time and you're saying like, oh, I remember Roman once told me the story of curb cuts, but what episode was it? And when was it? Do I have 20 minutes to listen to that episode? And we've sort of broken apart 
um, all that sort of knowledge in the worldview of 99% Invisible and, and put it into this book and then added like another like 50% of it, which people have never heard if they've even listened to every episode of the show. I, I mentioned in the introduction how much the pandemic has changed our physical world. And I was curious if there's been a pandemic design adaptation that you've noticed and found yourself really thinking a lot about. Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned the tape on the floor. I mean, that was the first one that I was like, um, I could use this all the time. <laughs> like when the pandemic is done, I'm perfectly happy to have, you know, single serpentine lines with, you know, little markers to stand, tell me where to stand. That would be, that would be great, actually. I enjoy that. I do not enjoy the plexiglass um, between me and the, and the person at the register. I think that's distancing and feels awful. Mm. Um, I do like the reexamination of our roads because, you know, when roads were invented, they were this open space that, you know, was a thoroughfare, but it was used by pedestrians and carts and horses and, and uh, you know, occasional cars and trolley lines. And they were multi-use spaces. And then for a hundred years, they became the domain of just cars. And we just, you know, gave that over to them. That was what our values, that's what we cared about at the time. And now we're needing a little bit more space outside and we're expanding out into the road. And I really like that re-examination of that public space because there's a ton of it and it's not used um, very efficiently and it's kind of nice that we're, we're looking at it again as it, you know through this crisis. Yeah, but tell me why you like the taped markers and why you like these <laughs> serpentine lines. I like single serpentine lines because <laughs> it, the worst thing that drives me crazy is having to choose something when I don't have to. And if there's a bank of registers and you're trying to figure out like which is the one I'm supposed to go into, I don't like having to choose that. So I like one line that feeds me into all the registers if you're like at a target or something. And then the reason I like the spaces is because it makes things clear, like, you know, like efficient. And, you know, sometimes I need a little space. It could be less than six feet, but I do like the guidance. <laughs> We're talking to Roman Mars, creator and host of 99% Invisible, a podcast about design and architecture and objects. And his new book is 99% Invisible City, a book that he co-wrote with Kurt Coldstedt. Uh, it's a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. What changes in your environment brought on by the pandemic have you noticed and want to ask about? Or uh, what are some quirky urban design questions that you have for Roman Mars? Are you a fan of 99% Invisible and want to share some of your favorite episodes? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So is it true that your interest in these sort of often overlooked parts of our physical world basically came from exploring your own backyard because your family couldn't afford to travel much? Um, that's one of the reasons for sure. I mean, I, I didn't, I have not gone to many other countries. I didn't even really leave the U.S. until I was like in my 30s. Really. Mm. And, um, and so I, you know, I had to find sort of pleasure in everyday things and I always seemed to do it. Like I never felt deprived. I never felt like I was missing out on a whole lot, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I find a wonder in everyday things. I don't know where it exactly came from, but I think that, you know, that's a good a guess as any, I suppose. <laughs> and so many of us are spending so much more time 
in our homes, around our homes, those of us who are lucky enough to have backyards. I'm wondering if there's something that uh, you want to remind us that also fascinated you as a child or somebody growing up yeah. um, that we should consider. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, we didn't design the book to come out during this time period. I mean, it started years ago, but it is sort of an interesting guide for the moment because right now we can't travel and we can't explore new places, but through this book and, and through kind of the 99PI mindset, you can look deeper at the place where you are and find all the sort of wonder. And mainly what I, one of the things I love is like, is the fact that if you pay attention to the design of the built world, you are paying attention to the fact that there are people who are thinking about how you use the city and are trying to make your life better. You know, it's pretty easy to run across bad design and get frustrated. But I am uh, amazed by how much uh, people get right, actually. And so one of the things like, like local to here, you know, uh, you know, the cisterns in the street, they give me delight. The ones in San Francisco that have the, the brick circle around it and it mm -hmm. indicates that there's a water tank below. And those were put in into, you know, as redundancies for, for fire safety, for having access to water. Um, I love those. I think they always give me delight. Um, I love curb cuts because, you know, here locally again, like in Berkeley, um, you know, Ed Roberts and, and this team of the rolling quads uh, used to smash up, you know, the corners of, of sidewalks to make them uh, ramp accessible. And uh, that started here and spread out across the nation and then the world. Um, I think there's real delight to be found in the progress and the cool things that people have done to make life better and, and more equitable for, for all of us. Yeah, it sounds like it's made the world feel much more benevolent to you, which is something we probably it need is. really badly right now. Yeah, and I can't I can't stress enough how much I'm not naturally wired to think about the world in good ways. Sometimes I mean, like, <laughs> like I am not known as my like optimistic, uh, sunny person necessarily, but like the course of doing this show for ten years has really changed my outlook when I'm out in the world. And, and, and sometimes it doesn't happen like automatically. Sometimes I have to reset. Like, you know, I think this often when I encounter uh, construction, like infrastructure construction, and I hit it and I'm like annoyed and I can't, I don't like being delayed and I have stuff to do. I always have stuff to do. And then I think about the fact that I spend time, you know, like exalting in the glory of of infrastructure and i should think about it, like this gets jobs and gets people you know uh, new ways to access things and it makes the city better for so many people and i should just chill out and just let it happen and uh and make it you know part of my life and realize that we have to work to get to these places we have to work to get good design yeah it's it's a great shift in perspective let me go to <laughs> caller uh jan in daily city who wants to join us hi jan oh hi thanks for having me on um, yeah, I think a lot of people here in the United States, they're oblivious to the fact of how much space we have sacrificed for the automobile. For example, see really wide streets, but very narrow sidewalks. You see really large intersections that are really good for moving vehicle traffic, but are very unsafe for pedestrians. And then finally, you see a lot of parking structure, a lot of uh, things of that that are dedicated for storing automobiles that could be used for homes and such so that's really the big thing that i think a lot of americans are kind of they they see it every day but they don't really comprehend that fact and um yeah and then people i think that come in from foreign countries especially scandinavian nations they 
see this and they go, oh, my goodness, wow, this is not safe for me to bike. And, uh, I mean, it's amazing. It's incredible that uh, you Americans are, you know, can tolerate this. So, mm. yeah. 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 Jan, yeah. thanks. I, I mean, it, yes, go ahead, Roman Mars, if you had a reaction to what Jan was I saying. mean, it's totally true. I mean, we really have put the car front and center, and it's it's been a real sacrifice to our built environment to do it that way. But I do think it's worth, you know, noticing that, the, you know, like in the Scandinavian countries, you know, they could have gone that route and they chose different things actually kind of recently. And so we can choose different things if, if, if we so desire, but this is within our power right now. So. Yeah, it really is sort of also revealing of our cultural priorities in the kinds yeah. of things that we give so much space to both literally and figuratively as well. It's actually reminding me a little bit of that whole movement to take over parking spaces and turn them into little yeah. parklets. <laughs> Totally. I love that movement. The parking day is a real inspiration to, to me. It was one of the first stories I ever did for the show. I, um, you know, I met someone out at one of the, uh, one of the spaces that somebody reserved by putting a couple of coins in the meter and <laughs> lay down some asphalt. And I, re and I recorded an interview right there. I think it was about 10 years ago that I did that. And, you know, that's a, that's a parking as a truly wasted space. I mean, they, most parking spaces go unused for, you know, so much of their life, you know, like in the course of a day, and uh, claiming some of that back is is really important, you know, and, and an examination of how we use public space is, is kind of what we're trying to do all the time, you know, without too much judgment. I mean, we have, I have some judgment when it comes to the cars, but, but like recognize that people do use them and we have to figure out a city that works and that, that uses some cars and, and uses some space for lots of other things too. Yeah, you know, it's actually reminding me of also the piece that you did about the Postal Service and how much of our infrastructure was built up around a response to wanting to get mail to people, whether it be roads or the railroads. And one of the reasons yeah. that that particular episode jumped out at me is just because of how much the post office has been under attack or under fire, depending on your perspective. Yeah. Um, but the history of it and how much it played a role in building this country was really fascinating. I am totally fascinated and in love with the post office. And one of the reasons is because it was a driving force to so much that connected our country. I mean, it was really the post office that where Benjamin Franklin was working as a, in, a, in the postal service, you know, like for the, for the crown actually at the time where he began to see the colonies as, as one nation. And that from there, it's like, it's everything. Like the, the reason that there's federal money for roads is because it's in the constitution for building postal roads and, and getting a post office was a reason that uh, a town could be built up and have a road be, be uh, connected to it. And then, you know, when there was no aviation to speak of because it was too, uh, you know, expensive and, and rare and, and difficult after the war, um, you know, the U S postal service uh, airmail was what kept the aviation industry alive and built the, different uh, airports and airlines across the nation. And so, so much of it was driven by the post office and this need to communicate and connect us. And, you know, for a big country with lots of disparate uh, places, I mean, now the states have sort of grown together as one nation a little bit more than they were, you know, once, but it's really the post office that did that. And so I'm, I'm one of the people that I get I get probably the angriest about post office stuff <laughs> than I do about anything because um, uh, I, I really think that it's an important institution. I think it's one of the most important institutions we have.
Well, I love the story of how home delivery was inspired. Home delivery of mail was inspired by seeing people having to publicly learn of the deaths of loved ones when they would need to line up at the post office to be able yeah. to get their mail. Yeah, that happened during the Civil War. And it was just like, the, for the most part, people went to the post office. And then they, there was a sensitivity to the idea that um, it was hard to gather there and get uh, bad news. And so they started delivering to, to homes. And, and to save us that. And then that was taken on. And each of these things was adopted. You know, the reason why you have a number on your house is the thanks to do with the post office. The reason, um, you know, like you have so many things in your life today uh, is because of the post office. Yeah, amazing. Let me go next to caller Sam in Sacramento. Hi, Sam. Hi, can you hear me okay? I can. Go right ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention, I've done a lot of work in, um, in Singapore, and one of the interesting things about Singapore is that they have really large setbacks. And um, one of the things that allows for Singapore to be an ultra-dense city but also be extremely green is because of these setbacks. And so they have plants, like, all over everything. You know, they have plants on buildings. They have plants on their overpasses. They have uh, planters all over the place. And so when we talk about uh, I've, built, I've, I've built many a thing in uh, many a dense city in, 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 the United, uh, in the United States, but we don't have the same setbacks that allow for us to have greenery within the cities and that has a subconscious, like, um, I don't know what the term is, uh, um, uh, implication on, on people to be around more plants. Mm. And so when we talk about architecture and we talk about uh, building things, and especially when we talk about it in, with, with respect to dense cities, um, having large setbacks allows for more greenery uh, rather than concrete jungles. Sam, and, um, I would yeah. love, I would love to hear your comments on that, and I'll take my uh, my response off here. Roman, the impact of the setbacks and greenery. Yeah, I mean it's totally true, and these are things that are planned from the top down, and they have a huge effect on us. So the amount of open and green space that we can use, I think people are getting more mindful of this stuff. Like I've noticed more and more renderings of future skyscrapers that have trees all over them, and maybe even. <laughs> To, a, to an extent that is not realistic, you know, that it take, requires too much structure to put a tree on a, on, a, on a skyscraper, but you see them more and more. So you're seeing the shift of values in how we're planning and think about, thinking about the, the future of cities. And I think, you know, Singapore, and there's examples that we, that we see. And, um, and I, I noticed more experimentation on this front because the values are, are there, but, uh, you know, and, and there's great places in the city here where the like the Cal Academy where it has a green roof and that's uh, done really well and, and, and beautiful. And, and I think that this is going to be part of our future is to, you know, building in more of this stuff, but it was not a priority for a long, long time. And uh, I think that is changing. We're talking to Roman Mars, creator and host of 99% Invisible, and also now an author. His new book, 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design Call us with your questions or comments, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. What design element in your city or environment have you ever wondered about? What changes in the environment brought on by the pandemic have you noticed and want to talk about? 
Again, 866-733-6786 is the number. On Twitter or Facebook, you can reach us at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. We're talking with Roman Mars about why we should celebrate the overlooked and ordinary parts of our built urban environment. He's the host of the Design and Architecture podcast, 99% Invisible, and the author of a new book with Kurt Coldstead, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. And you, our listeners, are with us. And let me go straight to calls. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Let me bring Guillermo in. Hi, Guillermo. Hi, hi, Nina. Thank you for taking my phone call. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, thank you. So I'm a landscape designer and, um, and a contractor, and um, most of the time I try to minimize hardscaping and, uh, and improve uh, habitat and uh, planting materials and all going with putting more trees and stuff like that. But uh, one question that I always ask my clients is, what is the happiest place on earth that you have a, a good memory what is the mess memory that makes you happy? And I always try to bring that into the design so that they have that, since we are not traveling anymore, um, they can look at it and say, oh, that's make me happy. Oh, that makes me uh, well again, and my mental health backs again into normal. But the most important thing that I want to ask your guests is whether when you start to go through that process, have you ever thought about it what elements brings together to a specific building or a specific area that will make people smile, that will make people uh, look and say, wow, this is, is just beautiful and it brings back good memories. Guillermo, thanks. Roman Mars? I just, I'm just so delighted by Guillermo. <laughs> so that was just like the greatest thing. It was the greatest testament to the idea that there are people who are designing the world to, to, to make our, our lives a little bit better. Um, um, you know, I love, I mean, I think landscape architecture in particular is something that gives me a lot of joy. Like I like the native plants. I like ones that are really like uh, tapped into the environment here and are harmonious with the environment. I'm not a big fan of lawns. Uh, I can enjoy laying down on a lawn occasionally, but uh, I kind of like the ones that react to the California environment. I'm trying to think of the architecture that I love that makes me feel good. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I have a... <laughs> Because I study it and think about it a lot and report on it, I have a ability to find uh, something beautiful and even the ugliest things as long as it's interesting. Like I'm kind of story focused. And so I like things that, you know, like uh, that 
that show their history in some cool way. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I tend to, I mean, I, uh, you know, I like the federal building in San Francisco. I think people hate it. A lot of people hate it. I think it's beautiful. I think it's so cool. I think it's weird. I think it gives me joy. Um, you know, I like uh, my, one of my favorite things in the landscape that I love here is I love secret staircases. There's all kinds of staircases on uh, hilly, uh, hilly, you know, landscape here in the Bay Area that was usually done to connect people to, you know, tram lines in different places here in East Bay. And a secret staircase, nothing will make my day better than a secret staircase. And I think that if people explore their secret staircases in their neighborhood, they will have a better life for sure. How do you keep track of the wonders that you want to explore further? I mean, do you write it in a notebook? Do you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't sort of keep a notebook. I sort of have, it, it's sort of like I keep it all in my head. And if it, it if it's important, it, it, you know, it, it puts itself to the top of the queue at some point. But uh, I don't have the time or the ability to, to get out and do as much as I, as I want to. And one of the great things about the show, and, and one of the reasons why I think I got into journalism in the first place, is because uh, for, you know, like every public radio reporter and producer I know is like the shyest person I know. <laughs> and and they need a job as an excuse to talk to people <laughs> because otherwise they're hopeless at it. <laughs> and so I'm one of those people, like I have a hard time in, in the world sometimes and mediating it through the show and through the mission of the show. Um, really helps me, honestly, because I, I, I kind of could be a closed-in person who doesn't notice or appreciate things on yes. my own. And I, and I need an excuse to talk to people. Like, it's, it's nice for me to be able to talk to people. And I'm like, I enjoy myself, but it's also not the way I'm naturally wired. And so I created a condition in which I had to. And, uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it's part of my life at this point. Yeah, you know, that's so interesting you say that because I think a lot of people also think that I'm hugely extroverted because you choose to be the host, right, of a live talk show. But I but guarantee you're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never known a public radio person who was. Really, I've never I've done this 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go to uh, Valerie in San Francisco. Hi, Valerie. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, congratulations on your book. Um, I Thank also you. just published my first book. It's called Chinatown Pretty, and uh, mm -hmm. it's photos and stories of Chinatown seniors across North America and their street style, and also it's a celebration of how they live in, in the, their best urban lives. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite things about the Chinatown seniors we've met is that how they use public space. For example, in Washington Square Park in North Beach, you'll often see them doing uh, free exercise classes in groups and using things like parking meters as balance beams. Um, and I was wondering, one, what are some of your favorite examples of communities using public spaces in ways you wouldn't expect? That's a good one. I mean, that in and of itself. I mean, I think Chinatowns in particular, like we, we talk about them a little bit in the book and sort of like how they're sort of designed and constructed and how the one in San Francisco was rebuilt. And um, I, you know, I, you know, we mentioned Parking Day earlier, which is, is kind of this sort of a guerrilla effort to... Um, you know, to put a couple coins in the meter and then you reserve that space and then you make it into, you know, a mini golf course <laughs> for a few hours. And I, I love that sort of stuff that's performative. I also like stuff that's a little bit um, less performative. Um, there's, um, there's a tradition uh, of, of seed bombing as to, to sort of get some local flora into a, a seed uh, little container and throw it over into vacant lots and make them, uh, you know, like a bloom with uh, cool new things. I'm, I'm kind of into that. 
I'm into all kinds of different sort of like, um, you know, urban interventions that make uh, the place, you know, more usable. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I would talk a little bit in the book about Love Park in, in Philadelphia, which was sort of a modern park designed by Edmund Bacon. And, and you know, it really didn't function very well as a park. It had these long concrete sort of modernist uh, shapes and stuff. But then in the 80s, uh, skateboarders found it and they turned that place into this mecca of skateboarding and um, made it an important place and a place that people loved. And so um, I, I always like that example from, from Philadelphia. Well, Valerie, thanks so much for the question. Jack writes, Roman, you should do a short segment on California coolers, those little closets that people here used to build for perishables. I imagine most people see those two little vent-like things on the side of old houses and have no idea what they are. Most are probably covered up now. Oh, I didn't know what they were either. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to look into that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a discovery as I was reading that paragraph. This is her writes, I've lived in San Francisco and now an East Bay suburb, and it's so striking the difference between how homes are designed. In the suburbs, you have big front yards and those little strips between the sidewalks and the street. And I wonder how useful they are. What is your take on that? Well, it's called a verge, the thing that a little bit between the sidewalk and the street. And um, they're, they're strange. I mean, they're, they're often not used very well. Um, um, one of the things that they do is they're often a, sort of a buffer of safety for for traffic, you know, in case a, you know somebody skips a curb on a in, a in a car, and so it doesn't hurt anybody. Um, but they they kind of are this kind of underused public space, and so it's it's nice to see them used. I mean, a lot of people have been planting more trees on the other side of the verge. But one of the things that's funny about that is that car you know drivers or city planners um, get nervous about it because having trees in a verge that close to the road makes drivers nervous and makes them slow down, which I think is actually a good, a good quality. But over time in the suburbs, um, verge trees have moved into the other side um, because it makes drivers nervous instead of, you know, <laughs> protecting the populace who's walking, which I think is a little bit more important in that equation. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a strange space. I mean, we, we spend a little bit of time talking about, um, you know, noticing and naming these leftover places, like uh -huh. that little triangle of uh, of land that is formed uh, on an on-ramp to a highway it's like a little triangle often around here it's usually just concrete because it's so integrated but on the east coast in particular there's often like a little triangle of grass and trees on uh when you when you merge onto a highway and that we we, we uh, there's a guy named uh graham creole allen who, who named them freeway eddies you know these little, <laughs> little areas and uh sometimes naming and noticing these places um, makes people both appreciate them and, and actually kind of notice that they're not being used and maybe there's a there's a chance for us to, to re-examine our use of those spaces. Well, Stephen writes, I've often thought that the best way to design a city would be around the watershed, the streams, creeks, and rivers, and so much of the development done in the 20th century, streams and creeks were abused, fenced off, paved over, etc., Victor yeah. writes, I'm loving watching Venice Avenue come together. I'm so excited to see the shapes, design elements, greenery, plus transit solutions and ideas. This project, like all construction sites, tickles me pink. Sounds like a true 99% <laughs> uh, invisible or 99 PI person <laughs> for <Totally>. sure. Um, <laughs> let me go to David and Martinez. Hi, David. Join us. Hi. Uh, so I wanted to respond to Guillermo's uh, comment just about um, how places make you feel and how they were designed and as well as the 
designing around uh, water. So I grew up in Evanston, which is right outside of Chicago. And just in terms of designing around water, the way the city was designed along the lakefront, and just how it makes me feel every time I drive along Lakeshore Drive, approaching the city from either end, it really makes me feel at home. Oh. Having the lake on one side and then the architecture of the city on the other side, it's just spectacular. David, thanks. Oh, I mean, Roman, you have a particular love for Chicago yourself. I do, I do. So I lived in Chicago. I worked at WBEZ for a number of years. And Lakeshore Drive is is one of the great achievements. Like there's lots of uh, ink, you know, <laughs> written about the skyscrapers and the and the layout of, of Chicago. But I think it's one of its greatest architectural and design achievements is the ordinance to not build anything uh, on the east side of Lakeshore Drive and make it open to the lake. And that was a real choice. It's a real choice that most cities did not take. And I think it's one of the reasons why Chicago is is so utterly special. It's it's a great. There's one building that violated it, the, the only skyscraper that's on the other side of, of Lake Shore Drive. But other than that, uh, everything is, 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 is on the west side. You know, besides talking about infrastructure, in your book, you also spend a whole chapter on, like, raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Kurt Colstead right there. He, is that? Okay. some raccoons. Yeah, we do. I mean, the, the way we we interact with nature in our built environment is, is one of the things that I'm, I'm actually pretty interested in. And, and I think it's a, it's an interesting aspect and the, the, the animals that we, you know, we tend to treat as pests that have thrived in our urban environments is, is fascinating to me. I mean, there's a whole, especially there's the, the city of Toronto <laughs> has a real like love hate relationships with their <laughs> raccoon population. And they had to redesign their, garbage bins to, to deal with all the raccoons and they have this uh, they have this arms race when it comes to <laughs> their infrastructure because the raccoons are so smart and so dexterous and so devious um, but I think they're glorious little animals that have done a really good job uh, uh, taking with what we've given them and also with you know pigeons and all kinds of things I mean these are these, this is their space too and we're figuring out ways to to interact with them. We're talking with Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible, his new book, 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Hidden World of Everyday Design. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me see if I can go to more calls. Megan in Berkeley. Hi, Megan. Hi. Um, I'm a longtime listener of 99%. I love it. Thank you, Ma Roman. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, as a Berkeley slash Oakland native, I find myself horribly frustrated, particularly with Trader Joe's parking lots. I feel like <laughs> it's a constant, like, I won't even go to the grocery store when I need to sometimes because it's so frustrating. And so I was just wondering if you have any thoughts, like, on parking lot infrastructure and design, particularly Trader Joe's. I don't know why it's always so frustrating there. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. I don't know if I have particular thoughts. I, 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 I think I might know the one you go to because <laughs> I am frustrated with that parking lot too. Um, yeah, um, and, and what I recommend is, uh, is, is, is if you can possibly not take your car, that's, you know, take more trips and, and, you know, like on foot and not take your car. But if you have to, and you know, the Bay area 
one of its great um, issues with me. I've, I've lived in the Bay Area, except for this little jaunt in Chicago for, for a few years, um, for over 20 years. And, um, and one of the things that is frustrating about the Bay Area is it's never quite figured out what kind of city it is. It has never figured out if it's a car city or a public transit city. And I think it suffers from that. I think the whole area suffers from that. And uh, that leads to things like the Trader Joe's, uh, you know, having a small footprint, but uh, also you probably needing to drive to it pretty often. And so, yeah, it is totally frustrating. And I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Just... uh, I love that Megan said she's a longtime listener of 99PI. And I'm curious what you attribute to the success of the podcast. Well, I mean, it's like, it has a tone that I, I mean, I created the show I wanted to listen to. So I, I, I think it's, I think it's good for one thing. <laughs> um, and then, and then the other thing is like, I think that the idea of, you know, exploring stories of the built environment or explaining things um, in a meaningful way, you know, when it comes to podcasting and explanatory journalism, it's kind of the coin of the realm right now. You know, like it's kind of the thing that people are talking about online and I think design in particular is one of those things that delights people when they have a strong opinion about it. So people like, you know, this, you know, people when I was a kid didn't argue about the font on a movie poster, but they do that now. I don't think people knew what a font was. Um, I think they, you know, I think that people now are, you know, they are given permission to, you know, express their feelings about a, a building that doesn't feel right, you know, and know that they don't have to be an expert to, have an opinion about a thing. And so they want to express themselves in that way and find happy places and find places that give them joy. I just think that people, you know, like it's, it's a sort of curious age where people like to know the stories behind things. And, and so I think it kind of works for them. And the show is, you know, kind of designed to be uh, this sort of calm um, companion, you know, and it's critical of the world. And we, you know, hold the, the world to task and, and, you know, want to fight for equity and, you know, a fight for uh, a place that's accessible for everyone. Um, but it does it in a way where that we think that there's a, you know, there's a way to design a way out of it and to make the world a better place too. And I know you get asked this a lot, but if you, what is one thing that you always tell people who are interested in starting a podcast or, or, uh, you know, just advice in terms of how to make one good, as you say? <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, the main thing is just to spend time on it. I mean, like nothing, you know, podcasts can seem easy, like conversation can seem easy, but I guarantee even a show that, you know, feels like an easy conversation, it was produced, you know, someone planned it, someone planned the course of questions, you know, someone um, edited it. Uh, and, or, or if you didn't edit it after the fact, you spent a lot of time making sure it was good when it was, you know, recorded live to tape or presented live to tape. And so I'm a big believer in production and editing. I think mm. that every bit of effort that you put into it is worth it and it pays off. And I always say that, you know, if you have a show and you have a hundred thousand listeners and you cut one useless minute out of your podcast and you've saved a hundred thousand useless minutes in this <laughs> world, then you are practically a hero if you do that. Well, I leave you with one more uh, vote for coolers. Joan writes, I live in a fabulous studio in Oakland for years and I had one of those cool closets complete with the slots and the exterior wall for the ventilation. Worked absolutely great for pantry storage, particularly fruit and vegetables. Roman Mars, really delightful to talk with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you so much, Mina. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and congrats again on the new book, 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Hidden World of Everyday Design. Thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segments. Thanks to our listeners for listening. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.